Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing, projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. GMGM, hi and welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today we're back with Punk2477 with two attributes, normal black beard and grey forward cap. In real life, he's a man of many hats or caps, I should say. He's an architect, artist and photographer, but also deep into NFTs, having collected his first punk way back in 2018. He now currently serves as advisor to gen art platform Artblocks and photography platform Assembly Curated. Please welcome Pixel Pete to the show. Pete, how are you? I'm good, Max. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be on the show. Nice having you, man. Um, I think got put onto you from Tony Herrera um, since uh, since he was tagging you um, because of the uh, recent Golden Goose sale. So um, we'd love to sort of venture into some of that with you today as well. Sure. Yeah, Tony's like at the center of this web often. I think so. You probably speak his name frequently. Yeah, he's. Uh, he, I think he bleeds punks. I think so. Um, <laughs> So why don't we start with just a little bit of a handle. Why Pixel Pete? It's not the most profound coming to the name, but I, I like really love that it sort of happened by happenstance. There was a basketball player in the NBA in the, from the, I don't know, 70s or 80s that was called Pistol Pete uh, Maravich. And um, I played baseball as a kid for most of my life. And a coach gave me the nickname Pistol Pete when I tried to pitch one game before getting taken out because I wasn't that good. Um, but I could throw hard. Um, so I, I like kept that name as like an online <laughs> moniker and when NBA Top Shots came about, it really made sense because it was like a throwback to the basketball name. Uh, and then I had that name as Artblocks uh, began and I was like really involved in the Discord and somehow it came to me. I didn't, I, I don't love guns. So it was like this weird dichotomy. It was like sending the wrong message. And it, you know, it just occurred to me that I was like obsessively collecting pixels and pixel Pete sounded even better than pistol Pete. So it stuck. No, it's a, it's an awesome catchy uh, name, right? So, uh, well done. And, uh, would be great if you could share a bit of background to your backstory, um, before we get into punks and all the other bits and pieces. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people like myself would be interested to understand, uh, how you got to where you are. Sure. Sure. I'll go quickly through my sort of professional life maybe that led me to, to NFTs. But I, uh, I studied architecture in school. As you mentioned, I, I, I practiced architecture for about seven years after university and was always sort of looking for the next thing because I, I realized midway through school that the practice of architecture wasn't really the right fit for me. It was a, a bit of a slower pace and um, I don't know, the speed just wasn't really correct. And, and eventually I found my way into architectural photography documenting um, architecture for uh, colleagues, publications, for um, uh, competitions and things like that. And I had always sort of had my hand in photography. My dad was kind of a serious hobbyist. We had a dark room in our basement growing up. Um, I took, I was sort of in and out of art schools growing up um, and took a lot of photography classes. So I was always sort of had a camera 
And um, I think architecture school taught me how to like think about compositions of spaces really well. Um, so that came sort of natural. And then I just had to learn the technical sides. And once I did, I made the split from architecture and um, have been shooting for about nine years full time. Um, and then, yeah, and then that leads sort of into the pandemic. And um, well, I guess I should rewind sometime around 2016, 17. Um, my good friend Eric Snowfro um, had been sort of talking about exploring um, cryptocurrency. And he, there was, I, I have this distinct memory of being in a bar with Eric. Uh, it was just the two of us. And I think it was a late, it was like late in December of, I want to say 2016. And he was telling me that he, really wanted to buy a Bitcoin. And I didn't really know anything about Bitcoin at the time. I, you know, I sort of knew it existed. And Eric always has these like harebrained ideas and he sort of throws them off me as like a sounding board. And with that, as usual, I sort of met it with trepidation or whatever. And, and I remember then like a week later or a few days later, uh, he was having a New Year's Eve party uh, that a bunch of our friends were at. And he came up to me and he's like, Pete, I did it. I just bought the Bitcoin. And I think he had bought it on, you know, I assume Coinbase at the time. It was like, you know, $700, but it was like a big deal for, for both of us at that time to think about that kind of spending. And shortly after I started dabbling, especially as I learned more about Ethereum, largely through his explorations and, and his enthusiasm for smart contracts and composability and things like that. So we both sort of like had this like parallel path, me sort of like a few steps behind him dabbling into investing in, in crypto and like, you know, going through the ICO thing and. Uh, we went to a conference about business on the blockchain um, here at Rice University in Texas. So it was really interesting. And it really, you know, uh, the the uh, the, um, the interest just sort of grew over time kind of naturally, which eventually led to an interest in some early NFTs. I sort of didn't really, didn't really get it at first. So I, I watched him claim punks and I sort of said, like, this takes so long. Why are you, why are you doing this? You know, and. And then eventually dabbled sort of into, into crypto kitties and NBA top shots and eventually like a, a much broader range of things when it really started to click for me. Oh man, there's so much to sort of unpack there. But so you were friends with Snowfro before Snowfro was a thing. Yeah, well, Snowfro was always a thing, but uh, not not at the scale that it is now. He When he was in college, uh, he had a snow cone stand and his friend, and he had an afro. And uh, <laughs> so his his business was named Snowfro. Oh, that makes so much sense. We're, we're gonna have to have to get him get him on podcast at some stage. Yeah, yeah. Um. So so how did you meet? How did you meet Snowfro? We met in college, basically. He oh, was just wow. finishing, finishing college. I was still in college here, and he had moved from Austin to to Houston, where I live. And uh, we became quick friends through mutual friends, and yeah, we're roommates for several years, and uh, I've been really close friends since. Wow, you were you were roomies with Snowfro. Yeah, yeah. What what was that like? Were you both single and out on the town most of the time, or? Uh... I think we were like a little nerdy. I mean, we were out of town a lot, I should say, but like in a very like, I don't know, like in a in a sort of charming way. Maybe we went to a lot of music festivals and uh, a lot of music shows. He played a lot of music. Um, we had a big friend friend group and. Um, yeah, but we also like we're sort of nerds at heart and would like sit at our computer a lot and play, you know, on online poker or uh putz around in our various interests um across the room from each other on our on our old clunky laptops. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. Um and then maybe just go on a little bit back into your architecture days. So you, you studied architecture. What was your 
I mean, what, 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 of all things you could have chosen, what, what, did, what made you want to get into architecture at that time? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, um, I mentioned that I spent some years in and out of art schools and, and uh, summer programs and things like that. So I always had a real interest in, in arts. My grandmother was an artist and there's some other people in my family who are really talented at, at um, drawing and various things. My, my parents are both really creative. So I sort of had that in me, but I, as I was, and I was always really good at math and sort of logic, my, the logical side of my brain, you know, sort of always worked really well or at least it used to, I don't know. And when I was thinking about what to do in college, I couldn't really quite see where I would go if I went to art school. I'm, I'm really good sort of technically, which is why I think I was, I wound up ultimately being uh, a good photographer, but I, I'm not, I'm not always like super imaginative, you know, where I can just sort of close my eyes and put pen to paper and create something conceptual. I, I could like look at something and draw it. So that my, my dad's a contractor and, and furniture maker. And so sort of through like, that combination of of what my skill set seemed to be leaning towards and what my sort of surroundings were architecture seemed like you know as good as a direction as anything and it sort of piqued most of those interests mm, nice and and did you when you came out and from from architecture school were you focused on any specific uh type of projects was it mostly like residential or commercial type buildings like what were what were some of the buildings you were working yeah, on yeah i um so I, I really just explored the breadth of it. So I, early on, I worked at like a small boutique firm in Colorado, and then um, I did some traveling for a while and took some time off. Then I came back and I was at a commercial firm doing, you know, sort of large scale commercial buildings. Uh, that didn't really feel like the right fit. It was a little corporate for my tastes. And then I briefly had a stint at a firm that did restaurant design before finding kind of a nice, comfortable home at a place doing high end residential architecture and that's where I was for the last few years of that career and I it was just a perfect place I could sort of be myself I could like bike to work and show up all sweaty and go to you know and like my boss wouldn't you know it was like it was a very um good working environment a really supportive working environment and and ultimately that's what led me to being able to leave I think as I did because my boss at the time I remember like a couple of years before I left even he he brought me to a conference room and he said and at that time I was shooting pretty much full time on the side of working full time. And, uh, he told me that he knows I was actually for, for architectural photography. And he just wanted me to know that he fully supported me and that they would start hiring me for shoots, even if I was gone, which was a real vote of confidence because they used, in my opinion, one of the best photographers in Texas at the time. Um, so anyway, it was just like this really warm place to, to sort of be for the end of that career, but also to be sort of like, uh, gently let out the door i think it, on my own terms which was just great so was it an easy decision then it sounded like they they really helped you with that yeah i mean he he knew the writing was on the wall, right it was like clear that that was the direction that i was going it was just sort of a matter of time where i can get enough projects under my belt you know knowing that the income would be there for you know some sort of runway say four six months and then as soon as those i got a, a couple key big projects under contract and i mean that was it i was gone and two weeks. Um, yeah. And it was really funny. My, my architectural photography path sort of went the opposite direction where I, I started mostly shooting residential and towards the end of the time, I, I say that because I've taken the last year off of shooting, but, um, I've been shooting much more commercial or large scale institutional, uh, projects. So it's sort of funny that my, the like two careers mirror one. Oh, nice. Well, um, I guess you sort of haven't, uh, really looked back. 
<laughs> since where we are right now. But and then what was your what was your sort of journey into um, crypto? So I think you said that you know you're listening to Snowfro talk about Bitcoin back in 2017 at the bar and sort of morphed your way into you know, uh, crypto kitties and, and the like, was your journey basically mirroring Snowfro's or a little bit lagging or what was, what was your sort of journey? Yeah, to the for la lagging, lagging is probably the right term, you know, I mean, um, once I like sort of got it or whatever, you know, I really was like bought in and I sort of understood some of the, some of the mechanics that took me a little bit longer probably to like really come around on. I was all in as much as I, as much as I could be, which, you know, I wasn't making like a ton of money at the time, but but I was really enjoying sort of the hunt. I think all of us were at that time, you know, like looking into reading white papers and thinking about sort of this, like this utility aspect that a lot of these projects at the time um, were trying to solve for like, you know, identity uh, in third world countries and decentralized storage and things like that. So that was really fun. And then around that same time, I had like started doing like well enough in my, in my relatively young business that I was starting to um, invest more traditionally in, in sort of retirement and, and stocks and stuff like that um, on my own. And I had a good friend uh, named Ron who was uh, more advanced at that. And he was like helping me along, sort of like learning the ropes as far as uh, his history with trading. Um, and then I sort of got him into crypto through this like relationship, which was funny. And sort of, so we sort of had this world in which we would both work at the same coffee shop every day and get together and talk for much too long about eventually about just crypto, you know, but, um, earlier on about, about investing in general, but yeah, you know, and then when Eric read about on, on Reddit, he had read about crypto kitties from the Larva lab post and he was super excited about it. And I remember him telling me about it and I just like really just didn't see it at that time, you know, and to his credit, he, he did. And he spent the time learning how to, to claim those punks. And it was sort of fun to watch from, from the sidelines. And I would say I th must have been five or six months later, and I think early 2018 is when I um, claimed or bought my first one for like 0.13 ETH or something. And then I think I sold it famously like two weeks later for a cool profit of 0 0.05 or something. <laughs> um, and I think I did that four times back then. And then I, I just sort of let them go. You know, I I was like having. I think I was still just really learning the mechanics because, um, you know, it was all done through the Larva Lab site and i think through etherscan i don't remember obviously not through metamask um but it was just like a kind of a an interesting learning curve and then um i think even before before i before i bought my first one crypto kitties had sort of caught on a little bit and that i got more because it was just a more user-friendly interface and i think that was one less barrier to understand so i was buying crypto kitties and you know breeding them and just sort of having fun with them and uh trading them around a little um yeah. And then it really wasn't until, I mean, you know, then we experienced the the downturn somewhere shortly after there of, of the 2018 crash. And I think like a lot of people, I just sort of, you know, aligned my focus back on my work and uh, I continued like dollar cost averaging some investment, but like I didn't really pay any attention. I, I had faith that it was going to come back up eventually, but also had an idea that it was going to take quite a while. And I was okay with that. Um, and then it wasn't really until the pandemic started and um, we had this, you know, like small pandemic friend group, which included my partner and I and uh, Eric, his wife and kids. And we would get together a lot and be talking about how he was like putting his head down and building this thing that we had talked about a lot back in 2018. There was a time where um, 
four of us, team myself, his brother Daniel, who's an artist on Art Block, and uh, another friend of ours, Matthew, who's um, a professor of robotics at, at Rice University, and actually not in the space, but we used to get together and talk about this idea for Art Blocks that Eric had had. Um, and we all sort of brought something different to the table. But anyway, that all sort of blossomed into further exploration into NFTs as they started to develop more and all the timing just sort of aligned perfectly as history shows. So crazy. So when, when, when were you guys talking about art blocks? Like when were the early, early sort of conversations about art blocks? I think it was mid to late 2018. We have, it's funny, we have an old chat server. Why am I blanking on the name? We have a Slack channel. We have an old Slack channel that we used to be in and I got dug up not too long ago. And there's all these kind of weird, nerdy conversations. Um, there was a couple of other guys that were from, I think maybe even the punk community that were helping Eric with some of the technical stuff because at the time, the idea was to create um, an art blocks uh, blockchain and have all of the transactions and all the functionality happen through its own blockchain because some of the infrastructure that now exists, MetaMask and, and other things, um, wasn't really there yet. And my connection was sort of with the art world. I, I, along with architecture, I photographed a lot for the art community museums here. So the idea was that I could try to disseminate this kind of complicated, nerdy thing to these organizations. And the, the idea at the time was for it to be start more localized and have uh, individual galleries kind of run a node that would allow for their artists to create um, an algorithmic work that can interact with the blockchain via their own sort of in-house server, which like in <laughs> retrospect, it all sounds so complicated, but at the, it just, at the time there was just no way to, to do these things efficiently yet on the Ethereum blockchain. So as you can imagine, that didn't really work out, but to Eric's credit, it, even though he let it simmer for a good year without doing anything, like I was describing when the, when the pandemic happened and the shutdown specifically happened, he found himself with some more time and used what limited coding uh, knowledge he had at the time to build upon and eventually create this thing. Now that MetaMask existed and, you know, smart contract tools were a little bit more sophisticated. He had written some smart contracts um, to sort of test out. And amazingly, the first iteration of Artblocks was just hand coded by Eric at his house while raising two kids with his wife um, <laughs> during the pandemic. Such an amazing story. Oh, man. What did you make of GenArt at the time in 2018? Were you familiar with the concept of GenArt or is that a new sort of idea space for you? I was very vaguely familiar. I, I really wasn't that familiar with people using the algorithms to create, to create work. I mean, I, I knew Solowit. Um, I don't think I even fully understood the, the breadth of his work, though, and, and um, some of the nuances of it. And so, yeah, you know, I had early exposure because of this. Eric was, it always goes back to Eric, but he was digging so deep into this world and uh, he was on Reddit talking to and learning from generative artists. So I was getting a little bit of exposure. Like I had seen a little bit of Tyler Hobbs stuff at the time, I think, and it was really graphically appealing to me. I think I even hadn't seen him at a, um, at a print show before, but, but not known who he was or, or bought anything. Um, and, and in the early art blocks days, I was, I'm, I'm sort of forever a skeptic, maybe like to my own detriment, but you know, we all have our own speed, but as Eric is just like super into everything and he's just like eager to participate in all the things and, and like really open minded about things, I'm sort of salty and slow. And it really wasn't until ringers dropped on art blocks where, cause I, I was around at the beginning of art blocks, but it wasn't until ringers dropped in January of 2020. 
that I like the second that that project was shared and I've been on the curation board since the implementation of that, which was earlier than that. So I'd, I got to see it a little bit early and, um, the second it was shared, it just, it like resonated with me. I could see, yeah, I could just sort of see the algorithm at work. It was simple enough to like fully wrap your mind around the possibilities of it and the, the sort of nuances of it, but yet graphically refined enough to be like really appealing from a graphic standpoint. But so that's saying that it took me a really long time. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I mean, you still got in really, really early. I, I mean, the first time I heard about art blocks, I couldn't make sense of it. Um, I think I heard it off a of Kevin Rose um, podcast that he had at the time. Sure. And he started talking about ringers and Fidenzas early on. And yeah, then um, yeah. before they started blowing up. And then when they started blowing up, that's when I started paying attention, <laughs> which is too late. Yeah. Well, you and a lot of people, you know, that's, that's the thing is we all have our own pace with this. I mean, I, I, we sort of skipped over Top Shots, but Top Shots was a really critical part of my um, adoption to the idea of NFTs, I think, what, in, what, in part just because it gave me a thing. I was, I was, you know, dating back to 2018, I was trying to like talk to the art community about this thing that I probably only like half understood at best. And I had a really hard time. And then when Top Shots happened, I collected baseball cards obsessively as a kid. I mean, I had like over 10,000 of them that we recently got rid of at my parents' house. But it was the first time where I could like really easily convey the value of provable digital assets on a decentralized ledger to like my friends, you know? And I, and I would sort of say that story a lot because I was like getting kind of deep into it. I was excited about it because it was kind of a crazy time when uh, Top Shots was sort of at its peak. And it really gave me like, I don't know, this, this like both confidence to talk about it, but also confidence to like wrap my head around it. And then I think I just needed a little bit more time regarding digital art. You know? Yeah, I think we all did. Yeah. Top, top Shots was a, was a crazy sort of frenzy too. Did, so you got into Top Shots relatively early as well? Pretty early. Yeah. And, and once again, this was because of Eric, because he is obsessive and he was just like, he was like a Hoover vacuum, just like taking in as much digital asset stuff as he could to try to try to wrap his mind around it you know and um but i like i'm not a huge sports fan anymore but i love i used to love basketball and i like understand the all of the statistics i understand the metrics i know who most of the people were um and you know it really like it scratched the itch of opening cards like like it did like 30 years ago for me so it was it was a really easy uh, connection to make um so i got pretty into it and but you know, modestly compared to, to some others, but, um, but it was really fun. And I, you know, I sold some moments for a decent amount and was able to sort of roll that into generative art as that sort of overlap started to happen for me. Yeah. At that time, were you, um, consciously aware about the community aspect of, of NFTs? You know, I wasn't, I had, I had like dabbled in the, in the, um, punks discord a little bit, maybe even dating back pretty far but I, I probably just lurked in there but i know that my discord um account was made in 2017 or something and it that's the only reason it would be but i didn't really experience th that discord in its fullest until late 2020 early 2021 when sort of a lot of people were in there there was just a lot of excitement and it all sort of centered around um it really centered around the punks discord at the time and that eventually bled into the artblox discord um and but no, I mean, I was never on, like, for example, I was, I was, I'm not a Twitter person. I'm a photographer, you know, I like Instagram and visuals. And, um, I remember this day that Eric 
when I started like really getting into it and spending a lot of time in, in our Discord server and on the Punk's Discord server, he texted me one day and he said, Pete, I think it's time that you join crypto Twitter. And it, which sounded like the nerdiest thing I could imagine. And I was like, not on board with it, but like a week later I signed up and, um, and now I'm like, you know, as we all are sort of dangerously connected to it, but, um, really grateful for this community. And, and, you know, so the, the art blocks community had already, it was really insular at the time. And so it was really fun once I sort of had like let myself, let my guard down and be in there, which was probably the second that I like allowed myself to actually get on discord. Um, and then, and then to just watch it like grow, I mean, the, the immediacy of, especially in those days, um, when a project was released and we were able to mint nice and slow, and we were all able to like watch what was coming out of the minter together and like react to it. It was, you know, the, it might not have been like the most sophisticated sort of art speak, but it was this like really genuine sense of like curiosity and excitement and like this thing that everybody was doing together that was really infectious. And I think um, even to this day, when there's whatever there are, 60 or 70,000 people in that server, um, that reads through. Uh, and obviously it's complicated by uh, what has happened in the last three years and sort of market dynamics. But at the core, there's still this amazing sense of community that is a real glue that keeps this, um, this world together, I think. Yeah. Who was in the Discord back then uh, with you? You know, talking, talking, and shilling up, talking, shilling up, box of punks. <laughs> like, it was just like all the. I mean, maybe Pranksy wasn't in there because that might have been like pre-Pranksy time, or that would have that was probably about the time that Pranksy was like really stocking up. But like Mister Seven Seven O Three was in there. Tony was in there. You know, I mean, Beauty and the Pope, which at the time. Their, their username was different, but just like so many people, you know, these like these sort of like all star people who were like smart enough to be there at the beginning and who really got it and who got the sense of community. And at the time, Eric was a moderator. On the, I mean, it, it was just yeah, it, it was fun to sort of watch this evolution of people that eventually branched out. Justin was in there and started their own things. You know, a lot of like brain drops was born from that community. I think Flamingo was probably born from that community. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was it was cool. And then um when Chromie Swiggles came out, did you mint? Because I think you said that the first one was the Ringers collection, right? Well, Ringers was the first one that like resonated with me. That doesn't mean that I wasn't playing around in there. So yeah, no, I I, I minted a, a good handful of uh squiggles. I, I minted um construction token, a Genesis. Genesis, interestingly, um, which is one of those are the, the three first projects um that were created on day one. And Genesis, which is by Eric's brother, Daniel Calderon-Ramin, he had started that project as a test for this thing that we were all doing in 2018. So there was an iteration of that, like a sort of less refined iteration of that, where um, they had loaded it up onto like a test website where you could hit spacebar and every action of hitting spacebar simulated um, uh, inserting a random hash into the algorithm. So it would like, you know, do like a mint. Um, That's cool. And it was really cool. And it's, and it's like that project and a lot of Daniel's work has like really grown in my mind, uh, since, since first seeing it, um, because he thinks of like really sort of, he doesn't try to hide like the things that are happening. It's really easy to understand. Like there's going to be a shape with three points and lines connecting them. And, um, it's, it was really easy for me to imagine seeing the randomized 
the hash go into the algorithm and like the first digit means the the thing is going to be placed here the second one means the next node is going to be here and the third one here and then the fourth one maybe is what color that line is or something and i i've like learned to appreciate it more and more uh, as as we've seen thousands of projects be submitted to artbox over the last several years mm-hmm. so nice i mean th- these are really fascinating stories at your, your sort of, you know, reminiscing. Cause I, I mean, I wasn't there at the time and sure, uh, sure. just super curious about all the things that sort of happened. But I mean, uh, you know, when you take a step back from all this, like, I mean, what, what's your, you know, sort of fascination with Jenna? Like what, what do you find special about it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me because I've always been a, what, what I thought was a technical person, um, both in um, my creative practice, but also, you know, like, uh, growing up in the eighties and nineties, I just sort of, you know, we, from the era that you grow up with the early computers and you just sort of are, are like learning as you go with everyone else of, of all ages. But I have this like deep appreciation for it from a technical standpoint, because it's like far beyond anything that I'm capable of. And I just, like, I haven't tried to code. I don't really have a strong desire to code. I, I just like have so much respect and adoration for this craft that that people making art through this medium can make. And I think as time has evolved, I've like grown to appreciate it and, and hold it to a higher regard. Um, especially as I, you know, teach myself more about art history and, and sort of the, the context of movements and materials and, and craft and things like that. And I feel like for the past six months or so, I can just see clearly how this we're, we're living in real time through a major art movement that you know has has been rooted back to the 50s and 60s for nearly a century but it is the art of our time you know it's it's like leveraging all the technology that we all for better or worse interact with every day the social connectivity of those tools there's sort of this like magic cauldron of things are all happening and we're all like a part of it if we choose to be which is incredibly exciting i think and then to top it off, I think there's just really exciting, sometimes untapped possibilities that exist because of the medium that artists can explore that will prove to be really important. Like speaking about uh, social economic issues, using visualization to visualize real, real information and important information, you know, that sort of like creates a snapshot of, of where we are as humanity, I think. Yeah. It, and so I, I will say that my, my interests have gone from waiting for things to be really graphically pleasing first, like on a surface level, because that's sort of, I've always had this problem maybe where I like, that's how I look at art first is like, I want like a nice picture on the wall. And to now I'm, I, there's so much more at play and the, the conceptual layer is so much more, it's become so much more interesting to me, especially when people compare that with a really interesting visual. And as this space matures and has uh, outsiders who have been working in this medium for a long time come in, we're starting to see more and more of that in like a really exciting and mature way. Yeah. Nice. Mate, and um, we're talking about aesthetics as well. Um, I think, you know, this, this podcast wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about, you know, Ringers 879. What did you see in, you know, what is Ringers 879 and, and what did you see in it at the time? Yeah. So Ringers 879, the goose, um, which is the, has become sort of the most, one of the most iconic pieces on art blocks, probably the most iconic piece on art blocks. And what's really interesting about it is that throughout the life 
of uh, Ringers as a project being being published and and us all sort of knowing all of the iterations often front to back through those early days of art blocks and even to, to today, like statistical rarity is a thing that's like a really obvious metric for people to to measure sort of value and uniqueness. But what was really great about the goose is from very early on, I'm talking like the day after mint, maybe even the day of the mint, I remember noting how much he liked it, but it stood out as not a, not particularly statistically rare, but like really unique from this. There's just this quality that can happen through the chance of an algorithm where Dimitri could have hit the testament button, you know, 10,000 times, a hundred thousand times and never would have gotten something that came out that looked sort of as unique as that piece did. And as identifiable as, as this sort of anthropomorphized version of a goose. So that, that was the first time that like, as a community, I think that we had experienced that aspect of this in this new sort of long form generative art, uh, art form that, that has sort of emerged because of art blocks and, and some of the players related to it. So, so I say all that, not like we're rewind and say that two days after the mint, the goose was sort of coined the goose from Dave, from the punk server in the art block server. I think somebody had called it up, maybe Dimitri or he posted it and Dave just responded with the goose emoji. And that was sort of it. It wasn't this like profound moment where everything I just said was encapsulated in that, you know, but that's sort of in retrospect. But um, at that time, it just like to me and to I think several others was just like a really cool, unique ringer that sort of didn't look like the rest of them. And um, Dimitri had noticed that the minter had put it up for auction. And at that time, OpenSea's auction mechanic was really clumsy where you had to place something called a bid, not or not like the bid that we use today, or not an offer. There was like offers and bids. I can't remember it. Um, but they could also just click accept at any moment, even if it was a timed auction. So I had put in all the ETH that I had, which was like 1.26 ETH, beating 113, who's one of our community members who will never let that be lived down, but in a very gracious way. Um, and then, and I, I remember saying in the server that, well, there goes my chance. That was That's all I got. And within an hour, I got pinged by Dimitri saying, you got the goose, you won the auction. I can't believe it. I'm so happy for you. And to this day, I have no idea who that mentor was. I don't really know what happened. He's probably crying in the corner somewhere. <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully, you know, hopefully they've had some big win since then. But it was just this like really interesting moment. And um, over time, it became this sort of meme in the server, you know, used for reactions and things like that. And something like that just kind of gains this traction to eventually have this knock-on effect of all of the stuff that I described earlier, which is just super fascinating, you know? So, so was it coined the goose before you, you, you purchased it? Yeah, yeah. It, the, probably the day that I did or the day before. But um, yeah, Dave DD was in there a lot in the early days of the Arplox server, and he had, he had just reacted with this goose emoji. And um, I, Dimitri said, you're really good at this. I remember that was his reaction to that post. And, and it's like kind of quickly just became the goose. The Ringers, Ringers was one of the first projects, maybe the first project where people were sort of trying to like assign familiarity to, to iterations, a generative art project. So there was like, I can't remember what other ones were, but people were trying to like, that looks like a fish, you know, that looks like a whatever. I don't think knowing that it would sort of anthropomorphize it into like stardom or anything. I think it was just a fun way for people that were, you know, I think one of the things about this world, especially in those early days, 
you had to have crypto to get into it. You, there probably wasn't a lot of people that had a lot of experience with art. So, you know, having that sort of familiar tie to something like is like gives you uh, an easier barrier of entry to appreciating an art form or something. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah, definitely. Once you see it, you you can't unsee it, and uh, and it's definitely got huge mimetic value now, right? For especially for crypto natives in the space, and so I think. The the recent Sotheby sale was sold to another punk six five two nine for six million dollars, which is which is huge and um, yeah. testament to what the piece actually means. Um, but 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 for you, I mean, like you, you know, what, what do you think it means to to this sort of space? You know, I was talking to this the other day uh, on the Proof podcast, but um, I think it's just such an interesting example. I sort of alluded to it earlier, but of the sort of magic that happens with a long form generative art project and these things that emerge out of it that are um, completely unexpected, both to the collector, but also to the artist, which I think is like one of the most exciting parts, right? Is to like create, um, create a program, essentially create a, an algorithm that's meant to create, you know, uh, identifiably random outputs that are like, you know, generally visually pleasing and fall within the artist's parameters. But to then still be surprised after looking at a bunch of testaments to make sure that that program works the way that you intended um, is really exciting. And then for there to be this like back and forth dialogue between the community and the artists and and everyone in between. Um, so this was this like great example of it. And I think over time it has just risen to sort of represent more than itself, more than Ringers as a whole, potentially the whole platform, potentially more than Art Blocks, you know. And I think that's what 6529 and his partners um, were responding to with their, with their purchase and bids is that this is this iconic thing that sort of represents this moment that we're in at this point in a, in a way that is like, I think for many, especially on the outside, hard to grasp. But that's what it sort of is to me is it's just this like thing that's greater than itself and it needed someone like that to steward it basically in perpetuity. I mean, I, I don't think they're i don't know that they'll ever sell it yeah um, no it's a it's a beautiful iconic piece and i think uh everybody in the nft space is um uh automatically knows what the what the goose is for sure and i think what i sort of find fascinating when you're talking about i guess your journey and the story it feels like there's a lot of punks behind the scenes of everything that is relatively culturally and historically significant, right? So, I mean, you, you spoke, I mean, this particular piece, I mean, it's created from, you know, a project called Art Blocks from a, a punk snowfro. Um, you were a punk that, that that sort of bought it and then the non-sold it. Now six, it's in the hands of 6529. Dave was the punk that named it the goose. So there's a lot of leaks to to punks in some ways, which which I sort of find super fascinating. But Maybe we can unpack your punk story. Um, you spoke about your first punk, which you which you held for a couple of weeks and then sold. And I, I think I'm going. I'm having a look at that punk now. So three six seven five was the punk. It was actually a, a Hember claim punk. But yeah. um, January fourth, two thousand eighteen. What was your thinking around buying a punk, and how were you thinking through traits at the time? I, I was definitely just looking at things that well, well. There was probably a variety of things. One is that were kind of aesthetically pleasing to me, but two, it was probably looking at the floor because I like, as I described, was not like fully bought into this thing. And although it wasn't much money at all, it was still like 
like part of my precious ETH and I just felt like I was throwing it away. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm like trying to remember if there was like specific thoughts in my head or what the, like I, I can see the page in front of me, but I, I can't remember, like I wasn't like digging so deep into like the, the coolest traits or whatever, because uh, I think I was just, I'm sort of like more uh, focused on trying to understand the tools that it required to transact in that ecosystem, which is funny. Experimenting. Yeah. Yeah, but I love this punk, and I would like. I'm looking at it now too, and I this is like the punk that got away to me because I I love the purple hat and I love the glasses, like the and I like Shane Lavalette said when you interviewed him, like I like that the female the head shape of the female punks I think is just like really aesthetically pleasing. So there's a lot to like about that one. Yeah, I like the purple hat too. And what about your current punk two four seven seven normal black beard and cap forward? What was this sort of purchasing journey like for you? Well, there wasn't a purchasing journey, but I, I'll say that this is another uh, great story that, of course, is linked back to Eric. But so there was a time in uh, 2019, maybe around like mo- like throughout 2019, maybe where Eric was like looking for punks that look like our sort of core friend group, you know, like maybe 10, 15, 20 people. I don't know. Um, and he would like every once in a while buy one and send it to them and sort of have to make them like understand how to receive it. Um, most of the time, because most of these people weren't into crypto. And um, I think it was my birthday in 2020, which would have been... 14th of May? No. Oh, is that what is that what it says on there? Uh, oh, okay. That, that's when, actually, that's when he bought it. Uh, but he transferred it to you on the 28th of Jan, 21. Oh, yeah. So where, yeah, where it says transfer from Artblock to another account, that's my birthday. So he bought it on my birthday. Or no, he transferred it first the day of my birthday. And anyway, it was one ETH, which at the time was like much more than he had spent on the other ones. And he was like, he's like, I'm never doing this again. I'm, I'm never, um, this is the last punk I'm going to buy for somebody because it's like too much money now, which was $200 at the time. But that took a lot of money to like, just like give your friend this pixelated thing that they may or may not care about. Although he knew at that time that I would care. Um, but anyway, so it's sort of, it sort of is, uh, sim- you know, I have a beard. I wear hats a lot. I'm pale. <laughs> so um, it sort of represented me. And, and, and because of that, it, you know, I, I look at it and it's like looking in the mirror, which is funny, but I think a lot of us sort of have this association with our punks and PFPs more broadly. And it's one that I just can't imagine ever not having. Yeah. That's such a cool story. I think I sort of missed that when I was looking at the, um, the on-chain history, but uh, it's, it's great that you can look at this on-chain history and there's a story behind all of this, right? Um, which is super cool. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes veiled by multiple addresses, but you can like sort of see those threads connect um, with a little help. Oh, nice. And if you were to describe punk culture for you, how would you describe that? You know, I, I think the thing that I love the most about it is what you were touching on earlier when when reflecting on my stories about art block is that it's this connective tissue that has like. I played a large part in like leading us all to sort of where we are right now, whether we were part of it or not. It's this thing that has cultivated founders of companies, artists who might not have considered themselves artists at the time. Um, relationships have, have formed and blossomed from it. So to me, it's just like, it has this like, incubator is the wrong word because that's like a techie sort of 
like a colder word, but you know, it has this like this um cultivating effect. And 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 then like the punk side of it where it's you know, it's sort of this like alternative culture that's sort of edgy and sort of like, you know, like ousted by by outsiders and yet it's like working its way into um you know maybe more quote unquote more refined corners of the world is like there's like institutions paying a little bit of attention and collecting them for their historic significance it means a lot to me i mean it you know obviously like there's this like deep thread of how i got into this world that is like very tightly tied to punks which i'm just like eternally grateful for yeah Connective tissue is actually a really good way. I hadn't thought of it like that, but uh, you're, you're right. I think there's just so many webs of, of connections, which are valuable connections too, right? Um, that that's really uh, unique about punks. Um, and and if money wasn't an issue for you, like what what would be your dream punk? You know, I I like really love my punk, so I don't know that I would ever even replace mine with anything else if I were to have something else. Um, and it's funny because like I don't see myself as a zombie. I love hoodie punks, so like it'd be cool to have a hoodie punk. I love cowboy hat punks because like I live in Texas, although I don't wear a cowboy hat. So those are some that I sort of like quietly aspire to. I think maybe my dream punk at this point is the the one we were talking about that um, was my first punk that I bought for point one three. I think that just has like a nostalgic uh, character to it that uh, will never go away. Yeah, cool. Well, you know, no, I think um, I've seen you on the Proof podcast, so. Uh... Your punk two four seven seven does look like uh, look like you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you had to look across the the punk community, like, do you have a favorite punk or series of punks that you that you like tuning into? I mean, my my obvious favorite here is going to be Eric because he's just like you know he, he is such a core of my the entire reason that I'm here, and also to to have sort of to have known him for over two decades. And to have seen the impact that he's been able to have on so many people's lives, and and more importantly, to see how people gen- can recognize his genuineness and his like he is who he is through and through, and he doesn't like he doesn't know how to be anybody else, which is like you can't say that about that many people, and it's been really like heartwarming and endearing to to watch other people from the internet from these early days like see that within him um, without knowing him in person. So I mean, I obviously have to like shout him out. Um, and there's like, there's so many others. I mean, I, I like Claire Silver and uh, Derek Edwards and a lot of the Flamingo people that I've gotten to know over the years. Uh, Beauty and the Punk we were talking about earlier. Like there's these people who have um, risen to be, you know, really notable artists, but also really notable sort of uh, stewards and figures in this, in this world that I've learned so much from uh, that. Yeah, it's, it'd be hard to sort of make a list. Beautiful. I think uh, Eric is on the lot on the top of many lists as well. So, um, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've never met him personally, but I think just from the things that I've sort of seen and the way he just conducts himself in a space where things can get, you know, quite toxic, he's carried himself really, really well, full of positivity, and it it, it just comes with a a purist vibe. Um, yeah, which is which is a beautiful thing, and that that's what I love about punks and and art blocks. It's it just feels like it's a bit more genuine and less grift, right? So, um, yeah, which is good. And I think we're, you know, we're expanding outwards from that. I think there's continues to be new platforms and, and actors in the space that are sort of carrying that torch in different directions. And I think as it matures, it'll just blossom into its own. I hope. Let's hope so. And um, are you in Flamingo Dow as well? Or? Not, no, I, I, 
I always had the, I, it always felt very hard to get into to me, even when I had the opportunity financially. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's, that's a huge one. But, uh, and we did, we didn't touch base on your role as an artist though, but I've got a couple of your collections on foundation up crossings, Houston and crossings, Venice. They're absolutely beautiful pieces. Um, do you want to talk about these projects for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I have, I'm a photographer, as I said, and, um, although I'm mostly a commercial photographer, I've, you know, made projects, uh, over the years and the crossing series was one that I made sort of in the early days of drones started. Um, I had always had this obsession with aerial photography. There was a time I remember, uh, in architecture school that we had this used bookshop in Houston and I was there and I had found a book by a photographer, Jan Art- Arthas Bertrand, who, um, makes these beautiful aerial photos from helicopters and planes because they're from like the 90s. But the, just the sort of compositions from above, you know, it's the reason that we all love staring out the window when we're flying in a plane um, was really captivating to me. And so when a friend had told me that you can buy a drone with a camera attached to it, I like, my mind was blown. And so I bought the, whatever the, the first DJI vision was and Putzed around with that. And at the time I was taking a lot of pictures of downtown Houston and it eventually evolved to finding this sort of, uh, templatic like composition of a straight down over an intersection that can be kind of tiled together to create like a quilted view of the city, no matter how you, uh, rearrange it. And, um, through that project, I'd, I'd been invited to, to show work in Venice at the Venice architecture Biennale in 2016, which led to, um, a mentor of mine who is an architect, but also a professor of architecture who had brought his students um, to the same exhibition four years before or two years before. Um, he had encouraged me to do sort of a, a sister series, if you will, of, of Venice. So I went to Venice and shot that series there, which was uh, sort of horrific because uh, the seagulls in Venice are notoriously uh, aggressive and they tried to dive bomb my, my drone several times. But they did it. And yeah, and I had, it was a really interesting, I had never really had a lot of exposure in the fine art world with uh, my own work and portfolio reviews and things like this. And this exposed me to um, being represented by a gallery for a little while and joining in on a photography biennial that happens here in Houston called PhotoFest, where there's a lot of these really important photo reviews happen where you uh, show your portfolio to curators and collectors. And I, it was just really warmly received, which I gathered is not always the case. And I had this huge ambition to expand on this project. And then both my my business started getting really busy and drone restrictions around the world started getting a lot tighter. And I think I sort of abandoned that. And now it's been six years. So um, anyway, it was really, it was wonderful. And it's funny, I had this really slow process. This seems to like a theme now of of coming around to whether or not I thought photography and the blockchain were the right fit for one another, which I've since gone like in the complete opposite direction. And I have probably one of the bigger photography collections out there. Um, and so I had sort of dabbled with some other projects early on. There was a, a website, a platform called Ephemera that was a, a, a lens-based art platform for video and photography, uh, photo-based artists that I had minted a couple of things on. And, and in fact, also the first, the Houston series of the Crossing series. And then that eventually sort of drifted off and I had to think about what that meant for my art. And I eventually burned the entire, I had all the collectors of the Houston series return their NFTs to me and I burned those one by one and then reminted them 
on my own dime on foundation and um on my own contract when you could have before manifold but but um after it was under the umbrella foundation contract um and then i redistributed those to them and it was sort of like at the time because i had really started to wrap my head around all of the mechanics of the space i really wanted to show artists specifically because i had started becoming a bit of an advocate for artists i wanted to show them that you were in control of of your art and you can like you can there are ways to sort of migrate forward if you know the technology that you started on has maybe not worked out the way that you wanted so it was a really informative experience yeah nice now they're beautiful pieces I, I just sort of noticed um tony herrera's got a couple of your pieces as well he does he was such an he was such an early supporter in fact he also um really in the early days had bought um a couple prints from my website and was just I've heard this from so many people. He was just so warm and so he just wants people to succeed. And, um, it's like, he's proud. Every time I see him now, um, he'll tell somebody that he has some of my prints on his walls. And it's like, you know, you can't, you can't express how much that means. Um, that, you know, and, and especially being a, a figure that's as prominent as he is in the space for him to, you know, champion, yourself and others the way that he does is, is really something and it's a great example you know i think like i learned a lot from that yeah tony seems to be everywhere uh, infiltrating <laughs> with every single pug story that uh that's been yeah. told um which is a beautiful thing too he's uh, such a really great soul to have man uh this was this was fun um i just want to go back a little bit to the topic of punks again what, what are your views on view one punks you know i i can't say that i have super strong views on it i think there's like i for whatever reason in my head i just don't i don't have any interest you know but i also i think it's really interesting that they have their own life and that people find them valuable i I think it's just like a sort of another layer to the punk story that's really interesting i mean there's nothing more punk than sort of being like the black sheep of the punks right (laughs) so that's particularly interesting to me but you know I, i i i think that whatever the larva lab guys, you know, what direction that they wanted to go to me is sort of the, the true representation of the thing that they created. And I just sort of respect that and, and move on with my, with my day. Gotcha. And how do you feel about the, um, the Uyghur acquisition of, uh, the punks IP back in the day? Yeah. You know, time will tell, I, I suppose. Um, but I miss the old days. I'll say that I, I really like, I mean, the old days in so many ways, the sort of pre-MeBits days, the, the, the old Discord days, um, you know, there was something really special there. And obviously it could never last forever. And so maybe it makes sense for there to be these new stewards that are um, going to try to give these things a different life um, into the future. But I sort of hope selfishly that they kind of live on as they are. I hope the website never goes away. I hope it never changes format. I hope they never become them sort of three-dimensional animated characters i i think they are just great as these simple uh pixelated uh portraits mm. well said and if you could pass on a message to the next owner of punk 2477 what would you like to say to them i would like to ask how they got their hands on my punk because it's never gonna leave oh <laughs> 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 um, yeah and i hope it, i hope it looks like that yeah nice Pete, this was uh, super fun and fascinating. Just unpicking your story and all the all the inner workings of Art Blocks and uh, 
and, and what punks was like back then. So thank you so much for your time, man. And um, I hope you do well on the rest of your uh, artistic sort of journey and photography journey. I'll be keeping an eye on that. But any, uh, any sort of final closing comments and, uh, you know, what's the best way for people to find you? Yeah, no real closing comments. I, I really appreciate you having me on and what you're doing here. I think you have just a real knack for this. So um, keep it up. It's fun to listen to um, stories that are both familiar and unfamiliar. And best way to get in touch with me is Pixel Pete on uh, Twitter and on Discord. And there's like a, a link bio thing for the other things in the, in the description. So. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll include them in the show notes. But um, guys, uh, thanks again for tuning in for another week of Punkcast. And uh, we'll be back next week with another punk. Bye for now.